This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Acts chapter 1 is where we will be this morning. As you're turning to Acts 1, let me just remind you where we came off last week. Easter, great week. One of our best, if not our best Sunday all year. And so let me just ask you this question. Starting big this morning, going in deep right away. Coming off of Easter, is there anything more glorious that Jesus could do than rise from the grave? Is there anything that shows his power and his majesty and his supremacy more than the resurrection? And as you think about that in your own thoughts, let me read to you a paragraph I came across in my study this week from the Dutch theologian Herman Babink. He's been dead for over 100 years, for about actually 100 years this year. And this paragraph changed the way I probably would have answered this question even a week ago on that great Easter morning. Listen to what Bavinck says. The ascension of Christ is a triumph and an even in an even stronger sense than the resurrection. Let me just read that one more time. I'm going to read, read on in the quote. The ascension of Christ is a triumph in an even stronger sense than the resurrection. In it, he, Jesus, triumphs over the whole earth, over all the laws of nature, over the gravity of matter. What more, his ascension is a triumph over all the hostile, diabolical, and human forces which were robbed by God of their armor in the cross of Christ, were exhibited in their helplessness, and bound to Christ's chariot of victory. Great word picture. And then Bavink goes on to write, because Christ has perfectly finished the Father's work, He is not only raised by the Father, but also admitted into his immediate presence when he ascends up to heaven and takes his seat at God's right hand on the throne of his majesty. I know that is like I just stood you in front of the fire hydrant and turned the thing on full blast. But I couldn't wait to read that to you this morning. As I was preparing, I was like, I just have to read this right away. I read dead theologians quite a bit, but I I try to avoid just dense quotes for your sake. This one was just too good to pass up. This morning, coming off of Easter, we're going to read, study, look at an aspect of Jesus Christ's work that is often neglected in churches similar to ours. We're going to look at his ascension directly from earth to heaven 40 days after the resurrection. And I say this is a neglected doctrine, a neglected work of Christ, because the ascension in many churches, which we would call either more mainline or 
historic Protestant traditions. It's given in a day every year. There's an Ascension Sunday if you follow a liturgical calendar. But in most churches like ours, what we would call lower church, not because we're insulting ourselves, not because we do church lower, it just means we don't do as much elaborate liturgy or some of the things that come along with that. But in most evangelical churches, the Ascension is much more rarely looked at. And if Bavink is right, which I think he is, we should spend a lot more time looking at the wonderful work of God and the ascension of Christ. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So would you join me in a a word of prayer? God, would you be pleased to show us in this too often neglected work of exaltation the glory of Jesus Christ? I pray that what would happen in here isn't just learning, but would be renewing of minds that's turned into worship, that's turned into the glorification of God the Son, that's turned into changed lives and restored hope among the people of God here and listening online. I pray, God, that we would join together in praising the one who died, who rose again, and who ascended, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and lives and reigns, and is coming again soon. He's our hope, he's our peace, he's our joy, and he's the reason we've gathered together. Amen. So in just a minute, we are going to be in Acts Acts chapter 1. If you're not there, bring your Bible to that point. But while you're, well, before we get there, let me just set up. Let me connect what we did last week on Easter, where we read the first part of John 20 with this week, where we're going to read Acts chapter 1. So last week, we read of a woman in John 20, who's come to be known as Mary Magdalene. She is both the first person to see evidence of the resurrection and she's the first person to see and to talk to Jesus here on earth after he's come back from the grave. And we read that when she saw Jesus for the first time, her instinct is to reach out and grab him. And that's probably what you or I might want to do too. If you watch somebody who is very dear to you, abused, beaten, punished, and put to death, only to find them alive a few days later, alive and not just alive, but alive and well, I think all of our first instincts would be to reach out and grab them. But as Mary reaches for Jesus, this is what he says, John 20, verse 17. Do not cling to me. Strange thing for him to say. This is what we looked at last week. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Now last week, we covered much of this, but it's so good that that we should just say it again in preparation for moving on into, into Acts 1 and into the Ascension. 
The implications of what Jesus is saying to Mary here are truly incredible. Where once he was God in the flesh, Jesus was God in the flesh, he's come to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. But as Jesus was God in the flesh, he was in a a sense self-limited. This is what Philippians 2 says. It says that he left heaven and humbled himself, becoming like, and this is the posture that he adopts here on earth. He becomes like a servant. So that while Jesus was still God here on earth, he put aside certain divine attributes. Namely, and in this case, he entered into the space-time world. Folks, God exists outside of space and time. He's not bound by those things like you and I are. He's not limited by that. But when Jesus took on flesh, part of that was him entering into this world and in a sense being constrained by it. He was. As the God-man, he had things happen to him that didn't normally happen to God. He got hungry. He got tired. He had to age, and he had to grow, and he had to learn. And he could only be in one place at one time. Now, in the ascension, he's going to remove those constraints. The ones he voluntarily took on. And he's going back to heaven. And that's actually really good news for us as Christians. Even for Mary, this was good news. So where once, what we had, what Christians had, what his followers had, was Jesus in this world. But what we can have now, what Mary, Mary Magdalene, and every other Christian has been able to have, is not just moments with Jesus. Moments with God in the flesh. Mary had a few. Peter had some. James and Andrew had some. The other disciples and other people had some moments with God in the flesh. But for the rest of their lives and our lives, we can have every moment with God not just in the flesh close enough that we might be able to reach out and touch him, but indwelling us So that we live every moment of every day of our lives, not just near to the presence of God, but intimately filled with God, the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said would come when he left and aid and guide and illuminate and fill all believers. Everybody, that's not something special for the chosen few. But for all who place their faith in Christ, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's Ephesians 1.14. And so as incredible as it must have been for Mary Magdalene to stand a couple of feet away from the risen Christ outside of the empty tomb, and hey, I want that. If I could go someplace, it might be. Any place in history, it might be right there. But folks, we have to get the glory of what's being revealed just in this verse. As amazing and awesome as that must have been for Mary, you and I in Christ right now can have a fuller experience of fellowship and intimacy with God than Mary did in that moment. 
because the Holy Spirit can live inside of every single Christian all the time for every moment of our day. He's in you right now. And I know that even sounds weird to, to a certain extent, but it's true. If your hope is in him, Jesus lives in you. He's not just arm's length to you. He lives in you. And that happens because he didn't stay in the world. It happens because he ascended to heaven. So it's not a coincidence that Acts begins with this. Everything that follows in Acts happens because Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and now he's alive in heaven. That's what he was telling Mary. And that's what he's going to tell the disciples gathered together. So between Mary and the empty tomb and where we pick it up in Acts 1, Jesus appears to many different people. Sometimes it's just one or two people. Sometimes it's a small group. Sometimes it's a larger group. And at one point, he appears to over 500 people at one time. And that happens for a period of 40 days. And now let's read in Acts, starting at verse 6. What happens here in the ascension? So Acts 1, 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So before we get into all that the ascension implies, let's just enter into this scene a little bit. So since the resurrection, everything has changed. But in a lot of ways, just like before it, Jesus' closest disciples are still having a hard time conceptualizing of what really is the plan here. They were asking before his death, so now it's time, Jesus, for us to go to Jerusalem and and overthrow the government. And Jesus kept saying, no, that's not the way it's going to be. But they kept thinking this was going to be some sort of a political, some sort of an earthly insurrection. Now, even after the resurrection, they're starting to remember what he taught. They're connecting some of the dots with his teaching and his prophecy. And they've already seen a lot of fulfillment. He's already risen from the grave. But they're still asking, so now... Okay, now I get it. So we went to Jerusalem, died, rose again. Now it must be the time when you do all these things, right? To which Jesus basically says, I know you're still having trouble with this, but don't worry. I know what I'm doing. That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't worry. I know what I'm doing. It's not right now, but everything is proceeding according to plan. Everything's on schedule. And then he gives them a version of the Great Commission, similar to what's found in Matthew 28. And he's lifted up, and as he's raised up, raised up a, cl- a cloud kind of surrounds him. And then they can no longer see him. 
And just in case there's any doubt for, for us or for them, the readers here, anybody else who reads this, as to what happened, we're told that Jesus is taken up into heaven where he will be until he returns in, in much the same way. This seems mysterious, but very little mystery. We know exactly what's happening. Jesus has gone directly from earth to heaven. He waits in heaven, living, reigning, supreme, and he will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. So now, from this point on, I kind of wrestled with what, what to do here in this sermon. I really wanted to give you like 10 or 12 points of all the things that the ascension does, of all the things that, 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 it, that it means for us. But just given our time together and, and what I think we can accomplish, I, I just want to do this. I want to do this in two parts, just two simple parts. I want to talk about why Jesus has ascended. And then I ta- want to talk about what his ascension means for us. So just those two points. First, why Jesus has ascended. And second, what the ascension means for us. And just in case you're like, ah, I really would, I did want a 12-point list. I'm going to do a little preacher's trick and I'm going I'm to fit a list into point two. So you're still going to get a list of points. Don't worry about that. But this is just point one and two. Part one and two. First, why Jesus ascended. Second, what does that mean for us? Why does it make sense for Jesus to ascend into heaven? We're going to do a little bit of Bible work here. And for this, turn in your Bible if you want to. I'll read it if you don't. But if you want to, turn in first, to 1 first Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to start reading at verse 18. This is a heavily debated passage. Again, for the sake of time, I just can't get into everything. But what I want to draw is one really important point that Peter's making. Peter, being one of Jesus' closest friends while he was on earth, one of his most trusted messengers after he left, writes this. Again, if you're turning there, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So I'm going to pause here before moving on to verse 19. The first thing to know here is that Christ's death and resurrection are connected both to the physical and to the spiritual world. So Jesus has been put to death in the flesh, that is, naturally. In other words, it's it's important that we understand this. In other words, Jesus really died. His death wasn't metaphorical. It wasn't just a spiritual death where like, maybe his body remained alive, but he suffered an, a terrible anguish spiritually. He really died. His lungs stopped. His heart stopped pumping blood. His brain activity ceased. But Peter is also making it clear here that his resurrection wasn't only a physical thing. By saying that Jesus was made alive in the spirit, Peter is saying that this is not just the story, you know, of a man whose EKG flatlined and then he was resuscitated. He's saying that a spiritual exchange took place. 
where on Friday, Jesus suffered unto death physically, but he also spiritually bore the chastisement of God for the sins of mankind. And now, by a work of God, he's not only been brought back to natural life, he's been supernaturally resurrected. So that the sins that Jesus died for are no longer punishable with death. The things that violate the holiness of God, who is spirit. God's a spiritual being. It's not something like they've just, these sins have just been moved to another place. But they've been removed entirely. A supernatural work of God. They no longer exist. And so that when Christ rises again... He is spiritually clean, spiritually pure, and now spiritually worthy of new life and rejoining the Godhead in heaven. So Peter is connecting both the natural death of Jesus and the supernatural work of rising from the grave. It's both of those things because Jesus is the God-man and both are necessary for the forgiveness of sins, the washing away of sins of all mankind, everybody who believes in Jesus. So that's what Peter's doing in verse 18. Now verse 19, very controversial verse. In which he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now this verse, few that come after it, have been really intensely debated for about 500 years in Protestant churches. And... uh, You know, I would love to just settle 500 years of theological debate for you here in a couple of minutes, but unfortunately, we just don't have time for that, and I'm not capable of doing it. But one of the things that we want to draw out this morning is a simple truth that no matter where somebody would land on this passage, they can affirm. And when you're reading the Bible, one of the the most helpful things that you can do is when passages are confusing— you can simplify them by asking this question. What, at a minimum, can I be sure that this is teaching? In other words, you don't always need to drill into every nuance of a Bible passage. That's not wrong. I know a lot of you enjoy that. I enjoy that. But you don't always have to drill down into every nuance. But when you're stumped, just start asking What should anybody reading this be able to affirm with a plain, simple reading of these verses? And so this gets tricky here. But let's do that. Let's just ask together, what must this be saying? So verse 19 says, After Jesus was made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, Well, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, I wasn't kidding when I said this was confusing, right? So what is Peter connecting to the days of Noah before the flood and the death and the resurrection of Jesus? That's that's the question. That's the one that's been debated. That's the one that's confusing. Uh, Very quickly, two main options. 
Some Bible scholars think that what Peter is referring to is a group of fallen angels. And others think that this has to do with the people who mocked Noah for obeying the word of God in building the ark. And truthfully, both explanations have some merit, and there's no clear-cut answer. But again, this is where concentrating on the essence of what a passage must be saying can be really helpful. Whether this is saying that Jesus is proclaiming victory to fallen angels, who we would also call demons, or whether he is proclaiming victory to all those who scoffed at Noah for trusting in God's plan and are waiting in some sort of a spiritual after-death type prison before they're finally judged. Either way, Peter says that whoever Christ is proclaiming to now sees the error of their ways and sees that their judgment and sin, the condemnation of all that they've done wrong in defiance of God, they see the truthfulness of God and the glory of Christ and that seen in his resurrection. And what Peter adds, it's become most clear when he ascended into heaven to sit at God's right hand. Again, simply what Peter is saying is that whatever Jesus is proclaiming to whoever has defied God happened when he was raised, but also when he was lifted up into heaven. There's something about the ascension of Christ that proclaims to all kinds of people, living and dead, all kinds of spiritual powers, that Jesus is victorious forever. He is God on the throne in heaven. So what, what, when that happened, and, and notice, both of these things had to happen. He had to be resurrected, and he had to, be sent, and he had to ascend. There's this interesting transition that takes place when Jesus is on earth for those 40 days after the resurrection. So if you read these accounts, he's still talking to people. He invites at least one person to touch him. He's being seen by lots of people, but he starts doing things differently as well. He, he's, he starts moving in and out of rooms by passing through locked doors. Even some of his closest friends don't recognize him when he's right in front of them until he allows them to see who he really is. So for these 40 days, there's something about how he's not quite ready to leave the world, but he now exists in it in a different way. A way in which he's no longer bound by the usual restrictions of this place. He's no longer even quite the way he once was. And so we see then that it's at his ascension where these things are finally made right, where they're finally made whole. When he ascends to the Father, it's at that point that he proclaims the fullness of his victory. He fully triumphs over the rulers of this world and every other power in the universe that he has won. The resurrection is amazing, but that takes place in this world. The ascension takes place and shows his majesty not just to this place, not just to the rulers and the powers and the authorities of this world that control life and death, but to all spiritual realities as he ascends up in to heaven. 
You know, when he ascends up into heaven, people have kind of wondered about that. We know that the earth is round. You can't go up all the time and be in the same place. When the first Russian cosmonauts went to space proclaiming the Leninist way of life, a secularized way of life, one of the things, you know this, one of the things that they came back and said was, I went up there and I didn't see any evidence of God. There was no heaven above the earth. Folks, first of all, look at space. The whole thing proclaims the glory of God. It's one giant tapestry. We could do astronomy, but we just don't have time. That proclaims the glory of God. But the second thing is that people don't see heaven in spiritual realities not because they don't exist, but because God hasn't yet made it your time. There are evidences in the Bible, the stoning of Stephen being one of them, where God allows him to see right into heaven. He looks up as he's about to be martyred for the faith, and he looks up and he sees heaven opened and welcoming him. Folks, heaven is real. It's very real in a sense to say that it's above us. It doesn't mean geographically above us. It means that this place is lower. That's what James 3 says. And heaven is above this place because it's so much better. And that's where Jesus goes. And he goes there to sit down at the right hand of God. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is why it's right to say that the resurrection, sure, is glorious, but it's furthered by the ascension. And then we could say that if there's one more thing Christ does, it's that he sits down. Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sits down because that's what you do when the work is finished. He sits down because the job is done. And now Jesus mediates a new covenant sealed with his blood and proclaimed by him rising from the grave, but furthered and declared to all who would oppose God when he ascends to God in heaven. So now we can pray to him. Now we can watch him move among the church. And he rules not just being characterized as a servant, where we started out saying in Philippians 2, but as Lord and an everlasting king. That's why Jesus had to ascend to the Father, because this world was no longer his home. He had to go back to heaven. In part two, this one's going to be really quick. What does the ascension mean for us? There are lots of things. Let me just give you three. Number one, because Jesus has ascended into heaven, we too will ascend to heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. What is the hope of followers of Christ? What is your hope in life and in death? that we too will rise with Christ and ascend to heaven. Folks, this isn't just something that Jesus gets to do. If you are in him, you too will ascend this world into heaven. 
And you too will do all that Jesus does in heaven. You will sit on the throne of God. We'll get to that in a minute. So we too will ascend into heaven. Number two, our final home is with Jesus in heaven. John 14, three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. It's as if the Bible is regularly asking the question, how can we be sure that heaven's real and we'll go there? If you wonder that, how can I be sure that this place that sounds way too good to be true is real? The most simple answer that the Bible can give, the most simple answer that we can remind one another is that because Jesus is there right now. He's alive there right now and he's promised that he will come back and he will take us to a place that he has prepared for all those who are in him. Where I am, you will be there also. So our final home is with Jesus in heaven. Third thing, last thing. We will share in Christ's reign. This is where it becomes almost too much to take in. Two verses, Ephesians 2.6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Revelation 3.21. To the one who conquers, which means who believes in Jesus, remains faithful to the end. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, almost too hard to believe, but this is tied into the way and into the very act, the way that God created the world. God made men and women in his image, and the point was to join him, that we would join him in ruling over what he has made. Because Christ is our champion, that promise will soon be fulfilled. If you wonder, what is my future destiny? It's not just to go to heaven and have some place off to the side in the back. It's to be in the place that Jesus has prepared for you, which is next to him on the throne. You too climb up onto the throne of God and sit with him. Because he has ascended, finished the work, and sat down at the right hand of God. The ascension proclaims to all the world and all the spiritual authorities and everywhere in all of God's creation that Christ is Lord and his glory knows no end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Christ in heaven, spirit who lives inside of us and moves in this world. May you encourage the hearts of the believers. May you convict those who have not yet believed to grab hold of this promise and to make Christ their mighty champion who has defeated death 
who has overcome the world, who lives and reigns forever with you in heaven, and who we can have the most intimate of relationships with. May you receive the praise and honor and glory. May you encourage our hearts as we go, for you are indeed worthy of it all. It's in the name of splendid Jesus that we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.